Colossians chapter 1. Recently, I was in a meeting with various ministry leaders, and the point of that extended meeting was to discuss how effective uh, our ministries were and how to change them to be more effective. And what surprised me in that meeting was that though the Bible was talked about, though the Bible was even quoted from, the main source of wisdom the main standard by which we were judging our ministries was not the Word of God or any example we found in Jesus or in someone like Paul, but rather it was secular business leadership books and standards. So much so that by the end of that time together, some pastors were calling the people that attended their church members, customers and consumers. I think that there are certainly times when we can gain wisdom from those outside of Christianity. There are those that have insights into just how people's minds work and some other things, but that wasn't what was going on at this meeting. What was going on at this meeting was more than just helpful insights. It was the attitude of, let's run our ministry like these guys run a business. And I could not help but sit there and think, it seems like no one has known how to conduct ministry or do church up until the last 50 years when secular businessmen began writing books on leadership. It seemed like until, until now we have these great resources, we just didn't know how to, how to do church. We didn't know how to run an effective ministry. And though I certainly don't think it was intentional, I think that everyone there had good intentions. Clearly, there was a view that the Bible was not sufficient for us in our work. More than that, Christ himself was not sufficient for us and for our work. For he is the head of the church, leading it by his word through his spirit. Sadly, that kind of thinking, I think, is far too prevalent in the church among those who would call themselves Christians today. Christ has lost His place of supremacy in our thinking. Therefore, He has become something less than sufficient for our lives. And we can see this practically in our reliance in so many things other than the only one, Christ Himself, whom we should be relying on. And this attitude, though sadly pervasive today, was also an attitude that was being pushed on the Christians in the city of Colossae. It is outsiders who were coming in trying to undermine the believer's faith by telling them they needed something in addition to Christ in order to be close with God. In order to be really spiritual, really mature, to advance in their understanding of Christianity, they, need, they needed something more than just Christ. What was this teaching practically? What did it look like? What were some examples of it? Well, to be honest, we have some examples, but to know exactly what this teaching was is a bit of a mystery to us because it doesn't conform to any specific uh, group of thought or theology that we have both in the Bible or from secular literature. The best we can tell, it was kind of a syncretistic mishmash of Jewish legalism and local pagan folk belief. And we will see again, as we unpack this letter in the coming weeks, as we begin this new series on the book of Colossians, we will see examples of what this looked like and how it was working itself out 
um, in the in these teachers coming against these people. But at this point this morning, we need only be clear on this thing. There was a person or a small group of people who claimed superior spiritual status. And they began gathering a following, promising to serve as a guru or spiritual guide for these Christians. They would have been advising, again, the Colossians to practice certain rites, certain rituals, certain means of spiritual advancement, as well as a means of protection from spiritual harm. And Paul has heard about all of this. He has been told this is what is is going on in the city of Colossae. This is what is beginning to oppress the Christians there. And so Paul writes the letter that we have before us in order to show this false teaching to be just that, false. False. He is writing to show that what the Colossians were hearing is false. And how does he do that? How does he show it to be false? By exalting Jesus Christ. By pointing them to the very thing that they needed, the very thing that they already had. In different ways, Paul shows again and again throughout this book that Christ is supreme over all things, therefore He is sufficient in all things. You don't need anything other than what you have, other than Christ Himself. And it's helpful for us, I think, as we begin to remind ourselves what we saw not too long ago as we did our Bible overview series and we hit Colossians. You'll remember I mentioned to you the kind of summary statement that Pastor Tavigian gave of the theology of this book. It's a, it's a very memorable little phrase. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus Nothing equals everything. In other words, in order to be right with God, in order to experience salvation, in order to grow spiritually, you don't need anything other than Jesus Himself. Likewise, Paul not only shows that to be true, but he shows the opposite to be false. If you have everything but don't have Jesus, then you have nothing. Everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Likewise, if you have Jesus, but you also have something with Him, then you have nothing. Jesus plus something equals Nothing. In other words, I'm not talking about physical things. I'm not talking about you shouldn't have a car because that's something more than Jesus. Okay? No, obviously that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about something spiritual. Something that you are thinking you need to have, something you need to do in addition to Christ that's going to make you right with God, that's going to bring you closer to God. The Bible says no. And in this letter we will see Paul says no. Christ is all that you need. And if you try to add something else to Him, you wind up with not more, but less. You wind up with nothing, not even salvation itself. Thus, this is the message of Colossians, the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. And this is the message that we will be confronted with again and again and again over the next 13 weeks. And we want to begin thinking about this message by looking at just the first two verses, the kind of greeting that Paul gives at the outset of the letter. Follow along with me as I read at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. May God bless the reading of His Word. Now, we just read those two verses, and let's be honest, those are probably the two verses that we would typically skip over pretty fast in reading through the book of Colossians, right? 
I mean, I've done it. Let's just be honest here. We got, oh yeah, that's who wrote it. That's who I, you know, who he's writing to. Let's move on to the bulk of the letter. But, but we should be careful not to skip over those kinds of verses too quickly because from the outset, they are priming us for the message that we are going to hear. They are not just telling us who wrote it and who he, who it was written to, but they are telling us why it was being written and what the author is seeking to accomplish even in this brief greeting. And so this is what we want to see this morning. Specifically, we want to begin to see that if we are trusting in Christ and our relationship with God is secure and full and we need nothing else. So we want to see that rooted in the very circumstances of this letter. For the first thing that we see is this. We see the concern from an apostle of Christ. We see concern from an apostle of Christ. It's pretty clear in the first verse who wrote this letter. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. But the question may be arise in our minds, especially if we've read over this too quickly in the past, never thought about it. So did Timothy write it with Paul? Is he the co-author of the letter? Well, the answer is simple answer is no. And as you begin to read through the book of Colossians, it becomes clear there is a singular author who stands beside it. But Paul could have included Timothy for a couple of reasons. Number one, it could be that Timothy was the one who actually wrote the letter down. Probably uh, almost all of the letters written in the New Testament were done in this way. Paul, or whoever was the author, dictating and someone else writing uh, the, the letters down. And then Paul would often sign Paulus in Greek at the end, so that way they would know, oh, this is genuine, it's really coming from him. That's certainly possible. I don't know. We don't know if that's true. But the one thing that we're pretty confident is this. The reason why Paul is including Timothy is because Timothy is in fact in prison with Paul in Rome. That is where Paul is as he's writing this letter off, dashing it off with pastoral care and concern towards the church at Colossae, locked up, imprisoned for the sake of Christ. Although Timothy is held in probably the highest regard of all of Paul's co-workers, In his letters, Timothy is nevertheless set apart from Paul in this verse. Timothy is his protege. He is his faithful brother. And yet he is not an apostle like Paul is. An apostle was someone unique in all the New Testament because they were chosen by Christ. They were trained by Christ and experienced an encounter with Christ after his death and resurrection. Uh, that, that, that narrows the field of people pretty quickly as to who can and who cannot be an apostle of Christ. These were unique men, therefore, tasked with the beginning work uh, of global disciple-making, serving as the foundation for the church. This was an experience Paul had, but Timothy did not. <clears throat> doesn't mean Timothy is not faithful, doesn't mean he's an important worker, but he is not an apostle. Now, do you remember how Paul became an apostle? Because it was very different to all the others. All the others actually lived with Jesus and served alongside him during uh, the approximately three years of his earthly ministry. That was not Paul's experience. Luke tells us how Paul became an apostle in Acts chapter 9. You can turn there if you want or you can just listen as I read it. The, the apostle Paul at this point is not an apostle. Uh, He is going by the name of Saul. He is a gifted Pharisee, zealously persecuting the church. His one thought in seeking to be faithful to God was destroy the church of Christ. And here's what Luke tells us. 
Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, that is, Christianity, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarshish named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he, then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. It's a pretty amazing story. It was this Saul, first a persecutor of the church, then a builder of the church, that was called by the risen Christ to be his apostle. Now some of you may be wondering, if his name is Saul, why do we call him Paul? Well, why does he call himself Paul? I mean, that's where we get it from, right? Right at the beginning. How do we know it's the same person? Well, we see this transition in the book of Acts. And uh, think about it like this. When I was in seminary, there were lots of Korean students, friends that I had that had come from Korea to study at uh, Southern Seminary. And when they came here, they found, guess what, a culture that didn't speak Korean, oddly enough. We spoke English. And that meant that we not only didn't understand Korean, but we weren't very proficient at pronouncing Korean names. So someone named Sang-hun may take on the name uh, Daniel or James just because they don't want somebody butchering their name every time and going, now what was his name again? Uh, and likewise, Paul is doing something similar here. You heard he is called to work among the Gentile peoples primarily. And so though his birth name was Saul, a good Jewish name after the first king of Israel, he went by the name Paul, which sounded much more Greek, much more Gentile than Jewish. And notice also, uh, from that reading, Paul wasn't looking for the job of apostle, was he? He hadn't like put together his resume and sent it to the church of Jerusalem and said, hey, I think I should be in the running for the next apostleship. I mean, he was not even looking to follow Christ, was he? I mean, uh, Christ came after him. And therefore, it's not surprising in verse 1, what does he say? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. 
Now, again, we may just kind of run over that, but that is a profound statement that stands behind everything in Paul's life according to his thinking. He was saved from his sins as his eyes were opened to behold and believe the risen Christ by the will of God. He was commissioned to serve as an apostle by the will of God. He preached the gospel to the nations by the will of God. He taught biblical truth and grew the church by the will of God. He was imprisoned and suffered for Christ's sake by the will of God. It is not surprising, therefore, in another one of Paul's letters that he says that God works all things according to the counsel of His will. Paul's life was lived by the will of God. And yet this, not, this, this did not cause Paul to despair or to become bitter or hard-hearted. Sometimes things happen to us and we may, we may think if this has happened, it is surely God's will on some level, but I don't like it. Therefore, I don't like God. Why has He done this to me? Why has he, he maneuvered me in this way? Why has He put me in this situation? And that wasn't Paul. Paul said just the opposite. I was heading blinded by my religious zeal for hell and God, though blinding me, spiritually opened my eyes to see. He revealed Himself in such a way that I knew all of what I thought before was false teaching, was blasphemy and heresy, that Jesus is the Christ, He is the Son of God. Now I see to be true. Therefore, how can I not love this God who rescued me? How could I not love this God when I was kicking hard and rebelling against Him? And in this love, He had joy in the midst of God's will. For He knew what He deserved and what He didn't get by the grace and will of God. It was this reality of God's grace, this redemption, that moved Paul not only toward deep faith in and love for God, but also joy in knowing and doing His will, even when it meant he was going to suffer. What did God tell Ananias? About Paul, I will show him how much he must suffer for the name. In other words, being an apostle of the Gentiles was not a cakewalk. Frankly, it was not the commission that most of us, if any of us, would have stood up for if we were given the same vision that Paul was given. Paul, I've saved you from your sins. I've called you to be my apostle, to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And yet, here is the means by which you will have success. Suffering. Difficulty, hardship, beatings, shipwrecks, imprisonment. And Paul says, it doesn't matter. It's for Christ. I will do it. He is my Lord. He is my King. He is my Messiah. And therefore, loving God in this way, Paul also loved the church. Did you recognize what we saw in Acts chapter 9? Saul was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord when a light from heaven flashed around him and Christ said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, if up to that point we, we, we had, we'd stopped before Jesus talked, what would we say? Say, who or what was Paul persecuting? We would have said the church. But what does Jesus say? Why are you persecuting me? Paul will go on to write and say the church is the body of Christ. Not physically, literally. Okay? Christ has his own body, risen gloriously from the dead, alive forevermore. That's why I get a little, I get a little uh, on, uh, put off when people say, well, we've got to be the hands and feet of Christ. I want to say, he's got his own hands and feet. What, what are we talking about there? What do we mean? Uh, likewise, he, Paul does not mean, well, we're all together and we're all the physical body. No, spiritually, we are so united to Christ. He is so present with us. Jesus can say, if you're persecuting them, you're persecuting me. 
If you don't love them, the church, Christians, you don't love me. But if you do love me, then you will be loving the church. And that's what we see here in the example of Paul. He is an apostle called not just to have responsibility for the church, but because he loves his Savior, he loves the Savior's people. He loves the church, even to a church he'd never been to. Do you understand? Paul planted many, many churches. The church at Colossae was not one of them. He did not plant this church, and yet he loved this church. He had compassion for them. He had concern for them. Therefore, he was compelled to write to protect these young Christians. Being imprisoned, he could not go there himself, so he pins the letter for them. Now, before we move on to look at the second thing, we should just let Paul's example here at the end weigh on us just a little bit. Because one of the things that Christ commands his people is to love one another. To love one another. And often I think we believe we know what that means and we think we do a pretty good job of it. But the example of Paul says otherwise. At least for me. When when I think through the example of what Paul is showing here, frankly, I get a little, in fact, a lot convicted that even though I have said in my mind, this is loving the body of Christ, I have not gone far enough probably. At the very least, it means that we need to be concerned for more than what is happening with the church just in this building, in this location, among this people, in this city, in this state, in this country. We have to think about the church globally. Paul is in Rome. Get a, pull out your, your study Bible this afternoon and, and look at where Rome is, look at where Colossae is, and then look at that little... Uh, a distance key and figure out how many miles it is and how someone would have had to have traveled over land across the, across the sea to get from Colossae to Rome to even tell Paul what's going on. And Paul being in Rome, how easy it would have been to say, well, that, man, Colossae, I've never been there. I don't know those people. You know, you're going to have to travel hundreds of miles to get back. You know, let's just pray for him. Let's just pray for him. That's not what Paul did. That's not what Paul did. We need to think more globally about God's people. When the church in the Sudan is being slaughtered, we should feel its pain. When the church in West Africa experiences famine, we should seek to feed them. When the church in Asia lacks Bibles and reliable helps for discipleship, we should seek to provide them. Because if we don't love them in that way, it shows we really don't love Christ like we say we do. This is the kind of concern that exemplified Paul's life and should characterize our lives as Christians as well. Paul was not just concerned for them, though, as an apostle of Christ. He also wanted to comfort the people of Christ. This is the second thing that we see. Paul sought to comfort the people of Christ, not only here, but in these verses, but throughout this letter. This is what he's trying to accomplish. For the best that we can tell, the church at Colossae was started during Paul's three-year ministry in the the neighboring city of Ephesus in the mid-50s A.D. While he was there, a Colossian man named Epaphras traveled to Ephesus, likely on business, heard Paul preaching the gospel, and believed. He was discipled by Paul, and when the business that he had in that city was done, he went home, and guess what he did? Sort of sharing the gospel. You know, it's not this thing where it's like, oh, I believe, and and that's nice, and I'm going to read my Bible, and I'm going to study, and I'm going to pray, and I'm going to be with people. No, he proclaimed. That's the New Testament example. If you really believe Jesus has saved you from your sins, that He is Lord of everything, you want to tell people 
about that. And that's what he does. And in fact, he tells so many people. And God extends his grace to such a degree that a church is started. Now Epaphras has found Paul in a Roman prison and now is telling him, look, things have been going great. The believers are growing and coming to faith. The gospel is taking root. And yet, now there's these people coming in saying this kind of craziness. So Paul's response to this situation begins by him comforting them against the threats that they are facing by assuring them of the reality of who they are as Christians apart from anything else being foisted on them. In other words, Paul says, look, just remember this is who you are. This is who you are. And so almost immediately he is saying, don't worry about this other stuff that you're hearing because this is who you are. He says three things. First he says this, they are saints. The Christians in Colossae are saints. Now, in modern ears, when we hear the word saint, what do we think of? Oh, that person's such a saint, right? They're good, they're godly, they're nice. They're Mother Teresa or a Saint Nicholas or a Saint Augustine. We think of this person who stands head and shoulders above everyone else because uh, they're closer to God, they're more holy or, or whatever. Or in Catholic circles, it could be a formal designation, a status of sainthood is conferred on them. And so we have churches named after such people in our city. But understand, both of those ideas are wrong in light of the New Testament. Uh, biblically, that's not, that's not how to think. If you are a Christian, you are a saint. You understand that? If you're a Christian then you are a saint. The word saint, at least in the, in the English translation here, simply comes from the word that we also translate as holy, as hagios or hagioi, the saints. What it means is we have been set apart from the world by God, for God. We're no longer just like the unholy things of this world. Unholy meaning not inherently sinful, but not specifically used by God for, the, for His purposes. Okay, The tree over there, in this sense, isn't holy. doesn't mean the tree is sinful. The tree is amoral, isn't it? But until that tree has been set apart specifically for the purposes of God, it's not holy. In this way, every Christian is holy. doesn't mean you're perfect. doesn't mean you're sinless. It means God has uprooted you from the world and said, You're mine. You are mine. You are my, you are the disciple of my son. You are the servant to my kingship. And now, you're going to live for me and work for me in this world. That is what Paul is reminding the Colossians of. That they are set apart for God for the purposes of God. Like Paul, they have been called to salvation by the will of God. And now they are His special people. They are God's saints. Therefore, they don't need to pursue something else to feel like they they need an end with God. They already are in with God. They are His people. They are His saints. God has already loved them and saved them, and they don't need anything else besides Him, and neither do we. Again, we're not going to be perfect in this life. And yet, Paul says Christians are saints. God's people set aside for his work in this world. But more than that, they're not just saints, they're also faithful brothers. Paul says they're faithful brothers. Here is the encouraging part of the situation. There may have been a few of the Colossian Christians who have bought into the false teaching that's going on here. But by and large, I think what Paul is saying is these Christians are still faithful. 
they're hedging. They're like, I, you know, I don't know, some of this seems wrong, but the guy is making a compelling case. He, he, the, whoever this teacher or group of teachers is, <clears throat> they are steeped in the culture of Colossae. This, this place that was once a, along a major trade route. So you had anything and everything going in Colossae. I mean, if it was out there, if it was a belief, a philosophy, it was there. And these people have been raised in that environment. Their worldview has been shaped by a mishmash of all kinds of ideas. And now the gospel has come in and said, no, put that all aside. Here is the centering point of your life, Christ alone. And these people are saying, yeah, but you know how it is. This is Colossae. And Christ is great. We need Christ. But we've got to have these other things too. And yet, and yet, by and large, the church has not yet bought into this. They are still faithfully committed to Christ, putting their faith in Him. More than that, Paul calls them faithful brothers. Think about that from the Apostle Paul. Here's a man that you've heard about. Can you imagine Epaphras coming? Talking up the Apostle Paul, this man who was the instrument by which God saved Epaphras' life. Here's this man who was a foundation and pillar of this movement, the way, establishing what will be called Christianity, a beach into the Gentile worlds. And now we're carrying that on. And now Paul writes to them, it does not come with, with lofty and exalted titles, clearly setting himself above them. No, he says, you are faithful brothers. In other words, though as an apostle, I have responsibility for you and a measure of authority above you, nevertheless, I am side by side with you in the Christian faith. I am, I am here to come alongside you, my brothers and sisters in Christ, and serve you as your apostle. This last descriptor Paul gives of the Colossians is perhaps the most important. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. The Colossian Christians are in Christ. A few weeks ago I finished a book with the odd title of Operation Mincemeat. Now, if you know, if you actually read that book and know what it's about, the, the title becomes even more odd. Nevertheless, that is the, the real designation of a real opposition, or operation by the British during World War II. It was a scheme, a feint, uh, sending uh, false information to the Germans, making them think it's real so they would move all of their troops to one area of the Mediterranean so the Allies could launch an invasion force at another point. The whole book is about this process of espionage and, and, it, and it sets it against the backdrop of the larger espionage scene of World War II. One of the things that, that frankly blew my mind was just how many spies there were during World War II. I mean, hundreds of spies all over the world on all sides. Some double agents, some triple agents. I'm thinking, how do you even remember who you're working for at that point? Uh, but here they are, all of these people serving one country and yet living in another, trying to, to assimilate to not stand out. Now, give all of the uh, espionage part aside, and that's something pretty close to what Paul is talking about here. In fact, there's something of a, of a double phrase, almost a pun. He says the, the Christians that he's writing to, the saints, the faithful brothers, they are in Colossae in Christ. They are in Colossae in Christ. Physically, they live in the city of Colossae. But spiritually, they exist and move and have their being in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Thus they are at the same time citizens of two kingdoms. They went about their normal daily lives, but they did so united to their Savior. And therefore, if they are in Christ, He's telling them already, what more do you need? He he is priming the pump for this question to say, if you are already united in Him, why do you have need to to feel like you've got to have something else? You are already established with them. There is nothing from the outside that can bring you closer to Christ. And, And again, for those who have put their faith in Christ today, the reality is the same. I love the way Sam Storms explains it. He says this, No matter where you are geographically and physically, what you are spiritually will never change. You may be at work, at play, overseas, under the weather, out of money, but you are always and unchangeably in Christ. You may be down in the dumps, over the hill, or beside yourself, but you are always and unchangeably in Christ. You may be at paradise or in prison, at the movies or in Chicago, but you are always and unchangeably in Christ. Your geographical, earthly, physical location has no effect on your spiritual identity. But the reverse is different. It is precisely because you are in Christ that wherever you live and work and play, you make an impact. You carry an influence. You make a difference. Your spiritual identity as one in Christ must control and characterize how you live wherever you live. Thus the reality of being in Christ both brings us a comfort and a challenge. Comfort in that we are irrevocably God's people. And yet the challenge is to allow that to be known in how we live our life, to be salt and light in this world. This is the reality that Paul is going to hammer at home again and again and again again for the Colossians. You are in Christ, therefore renounce this false belief and make evident who you are in the midst of your daily life. And thus we come to the last point, and that is this. Paul is going to argue that they live a lot their lives by the gospel of Christ that they should have life by the gospel of Christ. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. For the Christian, grace and peace are both rooted in the gospel. Grace is God's undeserved favor. It is receiving from God what we don't deserve, and it is always based on the work of Christ. Always. This is why some people have defined the word grace with the acrostic G-R-A-C-E. God's riches at Christ's expense. This is how grace comes to us at the expense of Christ. It is Him taking on flesh, living and dying in our place. That sinners might receive salvation from God. In the movie Camelot, King Arthur is betrayed by the two people that he loves the most his wife Guinevere and his closest friend Lancelot, and they betray him by having an affair together. She is discovered by those other than the king and is put on trial and found guilty of treason. She is condemned to be burned at the stake, but the king is torn by what is happening. He still loved Guinevere, and yet the law had found her guilty. He wanted to show mercy, and yet as king, he had to be just. On the day of her execution, as the soldier was lighting the pyre over which she stood about to be burned, a court official approached the very emotional Arthur, and he asked him this, Your Majesty, why not ignore the verdict and pardon her? Arthur looks at him with a piercing gaze. Knowingly, the man steps back and he says, But you can't do that, can you? 
If she dies, your life is over. If she lives, your life is a fraud. Kill the queen or kill the law. That was the predicament of King Arthur that brought so much sorrow to his heart. And yet that was not the predicament of God. That was not the predicament of God. God didn't have to choose between justice and mercy, one or the other. In fact, in some ways, he couldn't have he wanted to. He's God. He's the very embodiment of justness. If we have any idea of what justice is, it's because it flows out of God and his character, his very nature. And yet he is also the perfection of mercy. He is both simultaneously a just God and a merciful God. And yet, God is never merciful at the expense of his justice. These things come together in the message of the gospel at the cross of Christ itself. The punishment that we have incurred, that we have incurred for our sins, was poured out on Jesus Christ. The judgment we deserve of eternity of hell was given to him as he hung on the cross, separated from his heavenly Father, enduring our wrath. Thus, salvation, life with God, is not something we earn. It is not something we deserve, we have a right to. It is something that comes to us by God's grace. Christ paid a just, wrathful sentence that we deserved so that God might show mercy to us and forgive us and declare us not guilty before Him. And what is the result of that grace given to us by God? Peace. Peace. This isn't the kind of peace that John Lennon sang about either. It's not the kind of peace from war that everyone should just give a chance. It is more than that. It is rooted in the Old Testament understanding of peace, of the word shalom. It means wholeness, spiritual and physical well-being. Life lived without harassment, without danger, without sin before God. And what Paul will show is that the result of believing the gospel is that we have this peace in our life. We have peace with God, imperfectly now, perfectly on the final day. And Paul wants the Colossians throughout this letter to remember the gospel, to believe it afresh, that they might have their lives transformed by it and ward off this false teaching. The first two chapters are all gospel. It's all gospel. It's Paul reminding them, this is who you are in Christ. This is the effect the gospel has had on you and continues to have in your life. Chapters 3 and 4, therefore, live this way. Therefore, live this way. Resting in the peace they have with Christ. Every generation of Christians is tempted to go along with the philosophy of the times because it's never easy to step out from the crowd. One author says it like this, it, will, it is never a comfortable thing to be able to step with what our community holds to be the best thinking of the day. But that thinking may be out of step with God, who has made us all. That's the concern that lays behind what Paul is writing to the Colossians, and the concern and the compassion that he is showing them. It's a concern that we must have for ourselves, because we may not struggle with the same details. We'll read through this and see the examples of the struggle, and we'll say, man, that's not us. We're not tempted to that. We're not tempted to, 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 to share the gospel with someone and say, now are you circumcised? Because you're going to get circumcised to be a Christian. I mean, that's just not where we're at. We're not about keeping food laws and about pagan folk religions, about having medallions with the name of demons hanging around our necks to ward off uh, things. That, that's not where we live, and yet the concern is still the same. That we would take on the, the worldview, the thinking, the superstitions of the culture, and try and bring them into our Christianity as something more than Christ. 
And Paul will say again and again, no, you don't need anything. Christ alone is supreme and he alone is sufficient for your life. Christ alone will make us right with God and Christ alone will provide for us the fullness of spiritual life that we crave. Father, we thank you for that. We thank you that Christ is all that we need. And so our desperate and earnest prayer as we hear this message of this book throughout these coming weeks is that you will help us to believe that, to know it, and to trust that that is true, that Christ is all that we need, that he is supreme and sufficient over and for our lives. God, this is our prayer even as we sing and seek to live our lives in Christ in this city. We ask it in the name of your Son. Amen.